You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to the Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week with the NNO. And with me are Colin Campbell, Will Doran, and Craig Jarvis. We'll talk about Governor Roy Cooper's first budget as governor, which came out this week. And we'll talk about the confirmation hearing that was uh, the first of its kind as well uh, under Cooper and for a long time. And we'll talk about a number of different bills that came out this week, uh, including uh, one that uh, Colin was writing about today on economic terrorism. So if that's not a tease, uh, I don't know what is. You'll find out what economic terrorism is if you stick around. Uh, and uh, we'll talk about uh, more possible restrictions on Cooper's appointment powers. Uh, but let's start with the budget. Craig, you were there at Durham Tech, and uh, the governor uh, put out his proposal that will now go to the legislature and uh, get what kind of a reception. I guess you can talk about that. But first of all, what was in the budget? Well, it, uh, it was pretty packed with an ambitious uh Democratic kind of uh, agenda, I'd say it's it's a five. It would be a five point one percent increase over the current budget, which is something over a billion dollars. Um, and it's partly, it's in large part, it's it's uh, the governor kind of keeping his promises that he made on the campaign trail, which is emphasizing education. Um, and he's got uh, different different proposals along those lines, uh, including the. Uh, Five percent in each of the next two years raised for uh, uh, public school teachers. He just he established a scholarship program that would give forgive uh, ten thousand dollar loans for uh, those students who go on to teach in uh, public schools, or uh, for over a certain period of time. Um, there's a let's see he would a uh, bunch of things. The uh, it was interesting in the uh, Department of Environmental Quality. One of the big uh, watchwords under the McCrory administration was make things, uh, make the department more business friendly. Uh, as he was, you know, cutting the department in size, Cooper said he called that. He said the department had been decimated and they need to hire more people. He's uh, solving that problem by uh, throwing 2.5 million dollars um, into the to beef up areas where some businesses have complained that the turnaround time to get permits is slow. So rather than just kind of saying, be nicer to business, here's some money to give you more people to speed things along. And he would uh, beef up the rainy day fund, and he claims uh, would keep the bond rating intact and that sort of thing. So it's a real grab bag, uh, you know, ambitious um, to be sure. And the first thing, uh, of course, state employees and teachers look for in these announcements is uh, what kind of raise are they getting? So what kind of raise are they uh, getting here? It's 2% for, uh, for uh, let's see, 2% or 8, well, yeah, or, or $800, which whichever is more, plus a $500 one-time bonus. And then uh, retirees would get a one-time 1.5% cost of living adjustment. So uh, basically, two percent raises for the for the your average state state worker. Is that more generous than uh, has been given out under the Republicans for the last few years, or is that pretty comparable? 
Um, does, does, I guess I'm wondering, what is the reception that this is going to get in the, in the legislature, which is, of course, controlled by Republicans, and, and they get to make the final uh, say yeah. on the budget? I'm not sure how it exactly <clears throat> lines up with what's been done in the past. I think it's pretty close, the 2%. Um, maybe it was something like 1% this year. I just not remembering, but uh, the State Employees Union is, was happy with it. They call it a, a good start. They'd like to see a little more. Um, in terms of reception in the legislature, this is really uh, kind of the annual uh, wish list exercise. It's, got, it's not, it's not going to be resembling the final product, to be sure. It's, uh, it allows the governor, Cooper, the Democrat, to say, these are all the things I want to do to improve your life, and we'll see what the Republicans, uh, you know, how, how sharp their knives are. Well, uh, like Craig said, this represents some of the promises Cooper made on the campaign trail, and one of those was to bring back the film tax credits. And uh, you updated that promise for the uh, coupometer that you're keeping as part of PolitiFact uh, this week. So what is he proposing in the budget on, on film taxes? Yeah, there are, there are probably plenty of things um, that were part of his various campaign promises that we're tracking. Uh, I need to go back through and read the budget even more in depth, but the the one that stuck out immediately was restoring the uh, the film tax credits that we had up until uh, uh, 2014 when they were uh, disbanded by the legislature. Um, he said he wanted to bring those back, and this budget that he has uh, did include some funding for them. Uh, they would restart in uh, in early 2018, so a little over a year from now, if you know, if Republicans were to get on board with that. Um, that's a big if. Um, Americans for Prosperity and some other, uh, you know, kind of small government groups were very against the tax credits. They called them handouts to Hollywood and special interests that we didn't really need. You know, some Democrats and some people from both parties, especially from the coast, uh, where a lot of movies were filmed and TV shows were filmed, uh, were a fan of them because they said they created a lot of jobs and, you know, kind of upped North Carolina's standing and its visibility, you know, uh, The Hunger Games was filmed here in Concord, Iron Man 3 was filmed in Wilmington, there have been some TV shows filmed here. Um, so that was one of his uh, promises that he is, uh, we rated it as in the works because, uh, you know, it's it's definitely far too early to say that, uh, you know, he's he's kept that promise, we'll see what the, what the legislature actually does with that. Um, but he, he was proposing... Uh, Originally, a $20 million program for the tax credits of, and then in the first year, and then after 2019, bringing it back up to uh, $40 million. That wouldn't be quite as large as it had been before. It was around $60 million um, under, under Bev Perdue um, before going away under Pat McCrory. So. Okay. And, of course, you're uh, keeping track of all of Cooper's promises at uh, PolitiFact North Carolina, so anybody who wants to see what else we're tracking can... Uh, can go there. Uh, Colin, anything stand out for you out of the budget? Uh, A few interesting uh, little capital items. I'm always interested to see what uh, the governor wants to build on any of these uh, budgets. And the interesting stuff in there for those who spend any time over at the legislature is that there's a pretty expansive uh, renovation, I think somewhere around their $20 million range for the legislative office building, which is uh, where a lot of the committee meetings are held uh, for legislative stuff, as well as a lot of the, the legislators have their offices in that building. Uh, so I'll be interested to see how that would work and whether that's not going to be a nice little bargaining chip for the governor uh, as he tries to get some of his priorities uh, through this budget into the legislature 
legislature's budget uh, for folks interested in tourism. There's a, a museum and a visitor center uh, to be constructed for Fort Fisher down near Wilmington. Uh, and there's a number of, of construction projects in there for um, UNC system campuses. Is that legislative office building pretty run down? You know, uh, it kind of surprised me as someone who spends a lot of time over there that that was the building you would choose. Um, I find that the legislative building is perhaps more in need of renovations. If you go in the legislative building, it looks almost identical to the way it looks when it was built in the 1960s. And in fact, I saw a documentary about uh, the state legislature that was done in the 60s, and it was kind of fun to watch. It's like, I feel like I recognize those chairs. I think I've sat in those chairs. That uh, carpet in the press room? Yeah, the carpet in the press room is <sighs> about as, as dingy and uh, ripped up as, as humanly possible, uh, although I think that has more to do with the press than maybe the entire uh, <laughs> no. s- uh, state of the building. Um, um, but I, considering I, the look of our building, that's probably yeah, yeah. More, the Inno building is um, you know uh, similarly in we, need of we some help. We shouldn't be casting stones. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Although I did, someone did comment uh, on my tweet about that, saying that they thought the only way the legislative building could be redone would be with dynamite. Um, and I should say that it, it did get a new roof uh, within the last year. If you, you go over there, the, the copper on the roof used to be kind of like faded and greenish, grayish blue or whatever. And uh, now it's got a new roof and it looks like they melted down a bunch of pennies and uh, almost like if the sun hits it a certain way, it looks like, like four shiny pyramids on top. Hmm. Well, since you're talking about the legislative building, I suppose we should talk about uh, the visitor that you guys got uh, this week. So, oh, yeah. Uh, this who, was who came uh, to see you in the legislative press room? High drama in the um, legislative press room. So for those who aren't familiar with sort of how things typically work news-wise at the legislative building, there's generally uh, – only about two places where you end up having a press conference with somebody uh, as prominent as Senate Leader Phil Berger, House Speaker Tim Moore, and that's the press conference room, which has a little podium and all the audio set up where most of the press conferences occur uh, for Democrats and Republicans. And then there's, you know, the gaggles that um, reporters have on the floor after a session with with some of the leadership. Uh, This time, uh, Senator Phil Berger made an unannounced uh, stop into the legislative press room, uh, which, as I mentioned earlier, is uh, kind of a shabby little place on the uh, ground floor of the legislative building uh, to tell us about uh, some interesting developments in the lawsuit uh, regarding the legislators attempt, legislature's attempt to combine the Ethics Commission and the State Board of Elections into one board. Uh, that was one of those things they did back in the special session in December that sort of pulled some power away from Governor Roy Cooper, who would otherwise have had the opportunity to appoint the majority of election boards across the state. That's mired in a lawsuit. Berger says that a ruling that came out from the NC Court of Appeals this week uh, effectively means that we have no elections board or ethics commission, uh, that because of sort of the way things worked out in these lawsuits, that it's neither the status quo of what was in place last year before the law, nor is it uh, what's envisioned under the law that the legislature passed in December. Uh, so effectively, those agencies doesn't, don't exist, which was the message that Berger came to us uh, in, the, in the press room, standing in front of uh, the, the infamous FUBAR meter uh, that journalists use to uh, track the level of um, craziness, I guess I should say, at the, the legislature, the degree to which things are running smoothly and the degree to which things have kind of gotten off the tracks a little bit. So he's standing there explaining how we, uh, we don't have uh, boards at all that, that regulate ethics in elections right now. Uh, I should say that Governor Roy Cooper has a different take on the matter. Um, he put out a statement saying he believes the, the same court ruling or court order uh, means that uh, the status quo remains in place until there's a hearing on this case uh, Tuesday. And the hearing is also going to involve the, the confirmation process for uh, Cooper cabinet appointees. Uh, I just heard as we're recording this from um, Josh Lawson, the uh, 
general counsel for the State Board of Elections, uh, asking what the attorneys there are making of this ruling, which uh, is online but is 100% written in legalese. I really could not make heads or tails of it because I don't have a law degree uh, and don't know a lot of these Latin terms that lawyers like to throw around. Um, It refers to a bunch of other case law and things like that, that you would have to each look up each individual uh, case. Yeah, so, uh, you know, you have to rely on attorneys' opinions of these, and there are somewhat conflicting opinions. Uh, So from the State Board of Elections standpoint, which, of course, is very interested in this case because they would like to know whether they exist or not, uh, the attorney, Josh Lawson, tells us that they read the order to affirm the legislature's right to legislate and our board's right to enforce election law. So they seem to think that they currently exist and have at least some ability to handle the election law regulations in the state right now. And uh, I guess the governor thinks that these boards exist because he appointed a chairman for one. Yeah, he. Uh, this happened Friday. Um, so the ethics commission, uh, which is composed, I think, four Democrats, four Republicans, um, was without a chair at the end of December as all this stuff was was in the works. McCrory, in his final days in office, appointed a Republican attorney named John Branch to be the chairman. And the understanding was that that guy was probably going to be the chairman, uh, at least for a few months in. uh, Under the new law, Cooper wouldn't have the power to appoint anybody new. Um, But under the old law, he he does have some appointment powers. So uh, on Friday, he appointed uh, Jane Finch, who's a longtime member of the uh, Ethics Commission and a Democrat, to be the chair. Phil Berger, the Senate leader, immediately sent out a press release saying that uh, that appointment was in violation of the court order that says that the Ethics Commission doesn't exist and therefore cannot have a chair. Uh, so lots of confusion over who should be in charge of ethics and election law in this state uh, until this uh, lawsuit is resolved. Uh, so, so if you uh, want to do something unethical, now, now might be the, the time. time. You, you might be able to make the argument in court that no one can stop you because okay. the commission doesn't exist. Not that we would advise. Yeah, things. I'm not condoning any breaking of the law here, but yes. Phil Berger, I should point out, said that the laws are still in effect when he told us his interpretation that the commissions don't exist. And we will still write about you if you do such unethical, unethical things. So, uh, well, Craig, that's all part of a larger lawsuit, right, that deals with uh, Cooper's appointment powers. And that is also, the, every part of this is in court. Uh, the the uh, right of the Senate to hold confirmation hearings for Cooper's appointees is also in court, also being challenged by Cooper. And there were some developments in that this week. Uh, the uh, Senate subpoenaed Larry Hall, Cooper's choice for military secretary, to come before their committee and have a confirmation hearing after he failed to show up several times. Uh, so uh, what finally uh, pushed him to to show up at the hearing? Well, the governor had, uh, last week after the subpoena was issued, uh, filed a motion with the court asking them to modify that uh, subpoena to delay things until, to delay Larry Hall's testimony until this court hearing next week so they can sort out who has the authority uh, over these appointments or not. And uh, up until Wednesday night, we didn't know what was going to happen when we finally reached a point where it was clear the judge was not going to make a wasn't going to decide at all was just not going to deal with that issue so the subpoena was still in effect larry hall um a, uh, marched into the committee room uh, to great fanfare there were uh, he, the, he is the appointment did you say to the military and veterans affairs commission so there was uh, you know a couple dozen um, veterans in their regalia there filling up the first couple of rows to support him and so it set up this interesting contrast where or uh, con- confrontation really where hall and the military or in the in one end of the room then this committee that had you know kind of uh, uh, antagonistically uh, 
seeing his failure to appear previously uh, as as a, as an affront, they were sort of facing down the military. Uh, I think the military presence sort of toned things down a bit, uh, is what I'm trying to say. Anyway, uh, Mary after, Hall was sitting there in his red he's jacket. A red that was blazer. a bright red jacket. Apparently, it, there is a Marine, you know, veterans, you know, a bunch of clothing like that that you can buy. Hats, coats, whatever. If you yeah. are, a yeah, Marine. I didn't see. It has an insignia on it. I, I didn't see it from the pictures I saw. So I thought he was dressed as uh, was the NC State coach Sidney Lowe, who was known for wearing right. bright red NC State yeah. jackets at yeah. basketball games. It wasn't just that he wanted to be noticed. He was. It had a. It had a meaning. Uh, so the the uh, hearing itself lasted about ninety minutes. It was very uh, collegial, uh, almost deferential. I'd say everybody thanked him for his service and then threw out some pretty softball questions. There were a few little zingers in there about, uh, you know, did he have a conflict of interest because as a Democrat, he voted against the creation of this commission. And, uh, you know, as an executive branch member now, he was defying, uh, apparently at the governor's behest, the uh, command to appear before this committee. Anyway, uh, it was all handled pretty well, uh, pretty, pretty smoothly. And they uh, they uh, recommended his approval. A second committee spent five minutes just a pro forma to to uh, prove it also. And then the Senate Monday night will vote to vote to confirm it. I imagine. So the message here: he was the first one. Depending on what happens with this lawsuit, uh, these other the next seven commission uh, appointments could go through the same process. Uh, they could get a little dicier than Larry Hall's was. And we, we should probably say, because we I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, that uh, there's a small update related to their uh, uh, ethics uh, forms that you wrote about today. But basically, the uh, committee that looks at uh, their ethics and f- issues, opinions about their conflicts of interest determined that Michael Regan, who's the uh, environmental secretary, does not have a conflict, a potential conflict of interest. Does not have a potential conflict. Initially, they, they said that he, uh, it's, an, it's fairly routine, but they, they sent a letter saying he has a potential conflict of interest because he used to uh, be an official with the Environmental Defense Fund, but actually more pertinently, he uh, up, up until recently owned a small environmental consulting firm. Well, uh, once they issued that letter, he went out and almost immediately dissolved his company and then went back to the Ethics Commission and said, look, I don't own that company anymore. So that is what prompted them to revise their, uh, their letter. Mm-hmm. So really, we're down to, of the, of the eight uh, nominees, uh, three of them have, uh, were flagged as having the potential for conflict, although none of them have an actual conflict that would prevent them from holding office. And I have a feeling that the senators, if they get to the confirmation hearing for Regan, might have might still have some questions for him. I think um, so. As well as for the, the uh, some of the others. Yeah, I think the final two could be the most difficult. Reagan at the Department of Environmental Quality, then Dr. Mandy Cohen for uh, DHHS, uh, uh, and she was involved in the, the Medicaid, Medicaid program. Um, under though, the Obama administration. Yeah, under the Obama so. administration, right. Uh, so these are two people who philosophically differ. But this, you know, the Senate was saying, look at the Larry Hall process. All we want is for somebody to come, for these nominees to come forward. We want to look over, over three things. Are they qualified? Will they follow the law? And are there any conflicts? And it's not going to be a big deal. And it wasn't a big deal with Hall. But uh, the problem is fundamentally Cooper thinks that they shouldn't have that authority which they just gave themselves after McCrory lost the election. 
Yeah, they uh, took away a number of his appointment powers, and uh, they're talking about taking away a couple more, right, Colin? Yeah, that was uh, a little bit of a lesser-known story this week. Kind of got overshadowed by all the fanfare about HB2 and about uh, the uh, confirmation process. Um, But there was a bill that passed the House on Thursday in a final vote uh, that dealt with uh, a number of community college uh, boards of trustees. Uh, These are not every board of trustees for community college in the state, but covered about uh, 17 of them, 16 or 17 of them in a local bill uh, filed by uh, Representative Justin Burr, who's a Republican from Albemarle. Uh, And this essentially takes away the governor's involvement in appointing these people who serve on their uh, local community college's board of trustees. Uh, The governor has, I think, about four appointments to each of these boards, and then uh, local county commissioners and school boards uh, typically appoint the rest of them. Uh, This would take those four appointments and uh, give two to the head of the Senate, which is Phil Berger right now, and two to the House Speaker, which is Tim Moore, uh, and they would pick people based on uh, recommendations from legislators in in their chambers who are from uh, the areas affected. When I talked to uh, Justin Burr about it, uh, he explained it as he thinks this is good policy because it means that rather than some random staffer in the governor's office deciding who's the best uh, candidate for these uh, boards, uh, a legislator who, who knows the area, knows the people a little bit better, would be able to, to make those decisions. But of course, uh, the timing of this comes you know, a month or two into uh, the governor's uh, term as a Democrat. Uh, this bill did not surface during uh, Republican Governor Pat McCrory's term. Uh, and so a lot of Democrats voted against it, saying it was uh, another infringement on uh, the governor's powers. The other effort uh, to restrict, or I guess, cut back on what uh, Roy Cooper has the power to appoint um, is another pair of bills also filed by uh, Representative Justin Burr uh, this week that would deal with local judge positions when there's a vacancy, uh, either district court or in special superior court circumstances at the the local level. Uh, Currently, if someone leaves during the middle of their term, the governor picks their replacement under uh, Burr's bill. Um, It would be the legislature again uh, making the replacement. Same argument on this, that it's closer to local control. Uh, The legislature would do it in the form of a, a bill. So somebody would nominate somebody, they'd put it up to a vote in both the House and Senate, and then that person would get to be the uh, judge that fills out a term. Uh, so that's what's uh, going on out down in the uh, restriction of Roy Cooper's appointment power department. And of course, there may be more to come in that area. I know there's a bill about uh, cutting back on the, the number of folks on the Court of Appeals, and uh, we should have a story about that in the next couple of days for Ann Blythe. So keep an eye out. There's, there's certainly more to come. And uh, we could talk longer than anybody wants to hear about all the many bills that were filed this week and that we wrote about, but uh, two kind of stand out that we should talk about. One is, uh, Colin, you wrote about the uh, the bill that was filed that uh, would crack down on certain behavior by uh protesters. Uh, and uh, what is that? What is that? Bill yeah, like? this uh, bill caught my eye because the title is economic terrorism. And I, of course, immediately wondered, oh, what's that? I mean, and my what first came to mind was that are we going to prosecute the uh, companies or sports leagues that boycott North Carolina over uh, House Bill 2? That is not what this bill is about. It's actually about um, protesters. This kind of comes in the wake of the Charlotte protester protest over the police shooting last fall, um, in which there was mostly peaceful protests, but there were a few instances uh, where people were uh, damaging property, breaking windows, um, 
and blocking highways. Uh, and this is filed by uh, Representative John Torbett, who's uh, from just outside of Charlotte, um, and he wants to create a new crime called economic terrorism, which is a fairly narrowly tailored thing for where you've damaged property. It's a you know high value of property. You're part of a riot or an unlawful uh, public assembly, uh, and the goal is to either intimidate the public or to intimidate some sort of uh, government entity. Um, and there's also some provisions in there specific to blocking um, roads and highways that uh, local governments would be responsible for immediately trying to uh, disperse people in, in these situations. Sometimes the police will wait and try to uh, have some restraint in how they handle it. Um, this would force them to act immediately and would also uh, sort of step up the level of criminal penalties for people who are arrested uh, and charged with, with blocking a highway as part of some sort of unlawful assembly or a riot situation. Uh, this is already getting some pushback from the ACLU. They think it has the potential to infringe on First Amendment rights. Uh, Representative Torbett tells me that uh, he believes it's it's not about, you know, restricting freedom to to protest or free speech. It's it's about people who are actively committing crimes uh, at the time they're involved in some sort of uh, uh, protest activity. Uh, So this is certain to uh, have a pretty big debate if this moves forward in the legislature. So if people uh, just gathered and massed and blocked a street... This wouldn't necessarily apply to them? That's where it gets a little bit squishy. Um, they'd have to be charging with something. So I, th- I think what would what would happen, because it's specific to uh, being part of an unlawful assembly, typically when uh, you go out and you don't have a permit, you end up blocking a street as part of a protest, police will, will give you a number of warnings and say, you know, this is an unlawful assembly. If you stay, you'll be arrested. Uh, so for those people who do get arrested... Uh, there's the potential that the level of misdemeanor that they're charged with could be a little bit higher than what they would otherwise be charged with in these sort of situations. Um, but it's all you know, probably subject to a legal interpretation and a judge's interpretation. And uh, since I only talked to Representative Torbett, who himself is not an attorney, I don't think, and I'm certainly not an attorney, it's probably going to be some uh, discussions about just exactly how this would work in practice. Well, and there are a bunch of other states that uh, that have bills like this, too, that they're considering in the past few months, right? Like some Midwestern states? Yeah, um, there's, I think Iowa has something similar. Uh, Minnesota's doing one. Uh, I should also note that the, one of the provisions is that uh, a city could sue over the cost of, uh, sue some of the protesters over the cost of the police response. Uh, and that's something that's popped up in a couple different states' bills. Uh, the New York Times did a story actually just within the last week or so that I think they, they tallied up about 16 different states where bills have been filed. Um, most of them haven't gotten that far because a lot of this is sort of in response to recent protests. Um, but certainly this is a, a popular trend among uh, Republican state legislators around the country. Yeah, I'm sure that suing protesters for the cost of the police that were sent out to the protest is not going to be popular with protesters who are you know, known to protest. So we yeah. might see some. Well, and, and that was the funny thing. I was looking at the the articles about how this went down in the Minnesota legislature. Uh, the hearing that was held in a committee on this bill was actually shut down by protesters. So I would not Completely be... Completely unsurprising. Yeah, I would not be surprised at all if uh, that happens or something comparable happens with protesters here if this bill does move forward. All right. Well, uh, Will, you wrote about the uh, ban the box bill. So basically... This is uh, preventing employers, government employers, right, from uh, asking at first about a applicant's criminal history. They could only ask about it later. Is that right? Yeah, and I guess this is a good timing if we're talking about creating new crimes or higher levels of crimes. Um, there's kind of the flip side. There's been a push for criminal justice reforms on 
several different levels here in North Carolina. We've had things like uh, raise the age or, uh, you know, uh, bills Justice and laws. Justice Reinvestment and some yeah, of those things. Justice yeah, Reinvestment Act that uh, Tom Tillis pushed for um, that, you know, helped people uh, expunge, you know, their first drug charges and things like that. So there's been kind of this push recently, bipartisan, for criminal justice reform. Uh, ban the box is kind of the, the latest uh, national trend. Um, and basically what it is is, you know, anyone who has applied for a job recently probably had to check off a little box that said, you know, have you or have you not been uh, convicted of a criminal offense? And what this would do is for um, government employees, whether, you know, you're trying to become the, the county dog catcher or, you know, a city uh, utility worker or a, uh, a state employee of, you know, there's half a million different state employees, um, that the the agency wouldn't be able to have that little box on the application anymore. So basically, you it would just require them to you know interview people without knowing whether or not they're a criminal. And then what this law does is, after you have offered someone a you know a, a conditional job offer, then the agency could run a criminal background check. And if it turned out that they did have a criminal record, then they could kind of uh, you know weigh weigh that with, you know, how much they liked the person that they got to know in the interview process and say, okay, well, you know, this person, you know, yes, they had an arrest for marijuana, but that was 15 years ago and they came across really professional in the interview. So we're just going to go ahead and, you know, ignore that and hire them anyways. Whereas beforehand, the argument is that that person might have gotten uh, weeded out um, but not intended <laughs> um, of and the so, hiring process. So there's a uh, uh, kind of counter argument that I guess uh, has been made that people will fall back on stereotypes if they don't get. Yeah, the there's uh, there's been some academic studies where they have uh, you know professors or you know uh, will submit a bunch of different applications to people with the exact same resume, uh, you know, 100 percent similar. But the only difference is the name. And they've found that the people with the names that are more typically uh, black or Hispanic get called back a lot less than the more kind of white-sounding names. Um, so there, there is some concern that this could, lead, could unintentionally harm minorities. Really, it's, you know, it's, it's intended to, uh, you know, to help people who are kind of down on their luck because of a criminal record and uh, which you know does disproportionately affect minorities, but there is concern that this could actually have some unintended bad consequences. So there's some debate to be had on that front as well. But the sponsors of the bill think that really this is going to help. Uh, you know, I, I talked to Representative uh, Garland Pierce from down in Scotland County, um, who said that you know we we should give people a second chance. You know, that's kind of what America is about. It's letting people prove themselves and, you know, being able to kind of pick yourself back up. So, uh, you know, the, the, that's kind of the philosophy behind it is, you know, that if, you know, if, if people want to change, then uh, they should be able to. And I think Representative Chuck McGrady is uh, the Republican on that bill. So uh, maybe it has a little more of a, a shot if it's starting to get some Republican... Yeah, it's 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 got it's got well, uh, otherwise it's Democrats, right? It's there's about fifteen or sixteen different uh, Democrats on it. There's a ton of co-sponsors on this bill, um, and also uh, Chuck McGrady is on it as well. And 
Uh, there might even be some more uh, Republicans on it by now. Every day I've looked at this, it was filed Wednesday, and uh, even later on in the day, Wednesday, then on Thursday, then today, it added more co-sponsors each time. I haven't looked at it in about four or five hours, so there, <laughs> there might be even more people on it by now. Um, but yeah, so I mean, that kind of speaks to the whole uh, you know, bipartisan nature of it as well. And like I said, obviously, it's mostly uh, Democrats are on it. But when I was talking with Representative Pierce, uh, he indicated that he thought that uh, you know, there might be some other uh, Republicans that, you know, could be convinced to get on board with it. Um, you know, he even suggested that maybe there would be a similar bill filed by a Republican, uh, which he said he would definitely welcome. So. All right. Well, uh, before we do headliner of the week, uh, we should listen to some tape we have from Representative McGrady, actually, who's been kind of everywhere this week. Uh, he's been uh, involved in a whole number of things, but the most prominent by far is HB2. We managed to make it through pretty much a whole podcast without mentioning HB2 somehow. Uh, But now we do. So we'll (laughs) listen to Representative uh, McGrady talk about HB2. Colin, what did did he say? Yeah, Uh, so this is is following a week in which there's been lots of accusations, both from Governor Roy Cooper and uh, legislators in the House, particularly Representative McGrady and House Speaker Tim Moore, that uh, the other side has walked away from the negotiating table, that uh, they're pretty much stuck on this referendum provision that would allow uh, voters to force a vote on a local non-discrimination ordinance. Uh, This clip from McGrady actually starts off talking uh, with his rationale for another provision that's uh, attracting some attention and some opposition from the ACLU uh, that would exempt religious groups and nonprofits uh, from being part of a local non-discrimination ordinances that uh, address you know, discrimination against transgender or, uh, or LGBT people otherwise. Uh, so he starts with that, and then we, we asked him a little bit more about uh, the impasse and what odds there are of, of sort of any sort of compromise getting through. So uh, here's Representative McGrady. trying to do is, is make sure that churches didn't get caught up in, you know, uh, uh, being put to do something that real churches don't want to do and that's around obviously the gender orientation issue it sort of harkens back to churches objections to gay marriage and whatnot Um, and then we also didn't want to involve the boy scouts we didn't want to have that whole debate again yeah be imposing on them letting them instead decide how they want to set their policies organizations decide their own, own policies and so that was what that exemption has to deal with um, I'm aware of the ACLU concerns. It's not on the religious side, I don't believe, as much as on the nonprofit side. You know, there. You know, I've got. I understand that if. Uh, you know, why would you apply that to a nonprofit like a land trust? I mean, doesn't. Okay, I got that. But if we were hung up on that provision. I think I could deal with that pretty easily. That's not the hang-up in this bill. Yeah, do you think most Democrats would, even with this provision in there, would probably vote for it if they get some of their other desires? I mean, that piece is easy to fix. Mm -hmm. There's also, I mean, for example, the criminal provisions. I think your article points out that there's pretty much agreement on that. That's true, but there's three three versions of the same thing. Yeah. Um, I think I wrote all three of them, but that's okay. Yeah. you know, can we come if if this bill was hung up over which uh, provisions ought to be in place? I would get that resolved. Uh, we need to get rid of the bigger issues before we move down to these issues. Yeah. Remembering that um, 
186 is as I've always put it out is is just an effort to move us forward I've got changes to the bill um, that I'm quite prepared to make based on public discussion I've got but uh, right now I don't have any way to m to make those changes because the bill is not presently moving and it's not presently moving because the governor um, is making sure I don't get uh, Democratic support on the bill. Yeah, so what do you think he needs to do for this bill to move forward in a way he that you could get to, into committee, put out some amendments, make whatever changes might he, be? He needs to tell uh, um, uh, his Democrats that uh, he's uh, reached uh, an agreement with respect to the uh, the one or two issues that he actually has some problems with. Yeah. Is there been any uh, movement on, on negotiations in the last couple of days, or are we still stalled as we were earlier in the week? I'm not aware of anything. Yeah. I know there were lots of business leaders that were in town over the last several days that met uh, personally with the governor. Um, and I know there was some effort being made to, to perhaps uh, have the pro tem, the speaker, and the governor um, have a discussion, but I, I even don't even know where that is. Yeah. So as of today, there's no difference than yesterday, and yesterday was no different than the day before. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Head, 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 headliner of the week. And it is time for Headliner of the Week, where we talk about the most interesting person, place, thing in this week's news. Uh, Craig, who's your Headliner of the Week? John Carrington. He, uh, this, this pick comes out of a news obituary that I have been working on today. John Carrington was a former state uh, senator who, uh, before that, before he turned to politics, he uh, became quite wealthy uh, uh, manufacturing and selling police equipment and spy equipment, uh, sort of, you know, surveillance stuff as well as forensic testing uh, materials. Uh, he, uh, he did pretty well to, uh, in that business, decided he wanted to uh, run for something, <clears throat> excuse me, ran for uh, state and federal office three or four or five times before he finally won a state Senate seat. Um, he got caught up and he got crosswise with the law back in about 2005 because he was selling uh, – he, he was arranging the sale of, of this material or this equipment to China, which uh, was, was banned by federal law because of uh, past human rights abuses. Um, anyway, he went on he's, – he's one of those people that could probably be the subject of a screenplay. He's just crammed more into his 82 years than most of us will. Uh, died this week on Tuesday and uh seems like a good choice. Yeah, the uh the headline on that story uh will definitely catch your your attention. Man of it's something about international intrigue and uh, spy gear. Yeah, spy gear. So, uh okay, well, former Senator John Carrington, the late Senator John Carrington, uh in the hat for headliner of the week. Will, who's your headliner of the week? I'm going to go with uh, Representative Tim Moore. Um, he was the subject of one of our PolitiFact fact checks uh, early this week, and uh, he, he had said that in North Carolina, teacher pay is, has been rising faster than anywhere else in the country. Um, I, I asked him what he meant by that, and uh, 
he said that if you look at just from basically two, 2014 on, uh, that that's true. And I looked at it, and he had a point there. We we still don't have data for about half the states for 2015, but of the states that we do have the data for, uh, he's right. However, if you go back and look at kind of the whole time that Moore and the rest of the GOP has been in charge of the legislature, we rank about 22nd. So not terrible in terms of races, um, but uh, not first. So we gave him a half true on that one, and um, I, I think it's something that it's going to be pretty interesting to a lot of people. You know, I, I know some uh, some teachers who told me that they they didn't believe it when we reported that uh, you know teachers were making nearly fifty thousand dollars on average this year. They were you know saying, "Oh, fake news," <laughs> but uh, it's true. And you know, I think a lot of teachers uh, you know maybe don't really realize that some of these races have happened. So for that reason, Tim Moore. All right. Speaker of the House, Tim Moore, uh, talking about teacher pay, something that we'll be talking a lot more about uh, as the budget process really gets underway now. Uh, so uh, Senator Carrington and Representative Moore, Speaker Moore, in the hat for Headliner of the Week. Colin, who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with an appointment that happened Friday and is getting a lot of attention from uh, Governor Roy Cooper. This is the appointment of a guy named Xander Guy. Uh, that is his name. Uh, he is the new chairman of the North Carolina Alcoholic Beverage Control Commission, uh, and he, previous to uh, this appointment, has been the mayor of Surf City, which is a great little beach town down in uh, Pender County uh, since 1999. Uh, he's going to be replacing uh, Lieutenant Go- former Lieutenant Governor Jim Gardner, who was uh, Pat McCrory's uh, guy in the uh, ABC Commission chairman post. Uh, this is a job that uh, controls a lot of the, the ABC system for the state. It carries a salary of uh, about $113,000. Uh, but it's getting a lot of attention, not because of uh, anything that uh, Xander Guy did uh, while leading the town of Surf City. Uh, it's from back in uh, 1990 that people are interested in, in his history, because at that point he was uh, convicted of a, a felony charge of uh, defrauding some of his uh, customers at his insurance agency. Ended up spending three months in prison, part of a three-year sentence, and then was uh, had his sentence commuted, and then he was later pardoned by uh, then-Governor Jim Martin. Uh, So that's gotten some uh, vitriol from the NC Republican Party that uh, is questioning why the governor would appoint a convicted felon, although if he's pardoned, if you still call him that, I'm not sure terminology-wise, but certainly lots of people talking about uh, this appointment to what is otherwise a a fairly um, low-key agency in state government. Okay. Xander Guy, the new head of the ABC Commission, uh, in the hat for headliner of the week, um, it's uh, we have quite a lineup there. Uh, Speaker Moore would be the one who uh, has never been uh, convicted of any crimes. Uh, so, uh, but Craig, you had me at spy equipment, um, and uh, uh, I, I just I, that whole story is uh, is of that guy's life is is pretty interesting. And yeah, my he, summary of it was very the shorthand. He yeah. there's a lot of twists and turns. Yeah, yeah. Look up governor, a couple governors, and Tony Rand. And, look up the story. It involves a uh, listening device uh, planted on uh, some or, or kept in in somebody's clothing to record a, a high powered state senator uh, uh, at lunch. And uh, a whole lot of other stuff. Plus, the, even the name kind of sounds like a spy. It sounds kind of like John Le Carre or right. however you pronounce that. Yeah. Uh, John, John. So John Carrington is our uh, headliner of the week this week. And uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, for Will Dorn, Craig Jarvis, and Colin Campbell, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, catch us next week. 
You've been listening to the Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com. 